0: Today I need to start with what is admittedly a very uncomfortable truth. And it's uncomfortable, I know, because it makes me uncomfortable. And here it is. I cannot locate the, the source of this quote, but it's, it's a quote that has lived with me for a long time now. Here it is. Most of us live lives that wouldn't be fundamentally different had we never heard the name of Jesus. Let's put it differently. Our lives tend to be shaped by far more things than they are shaped by the person of Jesus and us living out our lives for Him. If you'll stop and think about it, um, the wild inconsistencies that we can identify in all of our lives that exist, they're there, are there because we are being more formed by the culture of Johnson County or by the family of origin from which we came or our social media feed. They, they exist because those things exact such a pronounced influence on our lives. The things that motivate us are probably more or less the same kinds of things that would have motivated us had we never heard the name of Jesus. Um, The things that can kind of knock us off our bubble, as it were, and throw our life out of whack are the same kinds of things that could throw our life out of whack had we never heard the name of Jesus. And you see, I I have a, a verse that means a great deal to me. At least I say it does. Uh, Colossians 2.6, which says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Meaning what? You've heard me say this before. It means that the goal of the Christian life is for our lives to become like the life that Jesus would live if he were living in our place, that our lives become vehicles through which Jesus lives out his life on this earth. And if I'm honest, looking at my life, I I can see large swaths of it that are not like the life that Jesus would live. And so I'm left to say, what difference really is Jesus making in my life? And the uncomfortable answer is that he's not making nearly enough difference. Because at the heart of Scripture beats the idea that Jesus changes everything. That an encounter with Jesus Christ so reorders our life and so reworks our life that our lives down to the root level are nothing like the lives that we would have lived had we never met Jesus. Jesus changes everything. And we're going to see the extent of that change. In fact, we're going to put one word that kind of labels that change for us today. And we are also going to see why Jesus is the one who can change everything as we walk through Romans 5 together. Just by way of review, Romans 1 through 3, we're all sinners The human condition is so tainted with sin that none of us can stand before God on our own merit. So then what's the solution? What it's always been according to Paul, Romans chapter 4, faith. Trusting in God to be the only one that can keep His promises to us. And in Romans 4, he uses the Old Testament person Abraham to illustrate how this has always been the case, that we are so tainted with sin not even someone like Abraham can merit standing before God on his, on his own. So we must have faith in God. But at the end of Romans chapter 4, he begins to say that the object of our faith The one who is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to us is Jesus Christ. So he names Jesus Christ as being the one in whom we must place our faith at the end of Romans 4. But he begins to carry the idea forward as we get to Romans chapter 5 in saying, here's what Jesus does and here's why Jesus can do it. So let's get that in our mind. Those are the handles that we're going to use to walk through uh, the, the first several verses of Romans 5 today. This is what Jesus does, and this is why Jesus is able to do it. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he's underscoring his argument of Romans 4, he says, As a result of that, we have peace with God, and it comes through Jesus Christ. So there's our two big handles. This is what faith, just being justified by faith, does. And this is why Jesus is able to do it. And that word, remember I said there was one word that he would attach to the effect of Jesus and what Jesus is able to do for us when we put our faith in him. And that word is the word peace. We have, he says, as a result of placing our faith in Jesus, peace with God. If there is any word in the Bible that is more under translated than the word peace I don't know what it is the word peace is being informed in Paul's Jewish framework by the word shalom now if I were to ask you to define peace more or less most of us would define peace by the absence of hostilities in other words we're not shooting at any other anymore so we must be at peace but that is an inadequate understanding of peace Right now, Russia and NATO are in a standoff over Ukraine. We are not shooting at one another over there. But would you call what exists right now between NATO and the Ukraine peace? Of course not. The Koreas haven't shot at each other, more or less, since 1953. Would you classify the state of existence between the two Koreas right now as peace if it is, it's a very uneasy piece and even an unappealing piece. And then let's just bring it down to the personal level. Those of you who are parents have had the experience where you as a parent go to your corner and the child goes to their corner, but would you classify that, that state of existence as being peace? Of course you wouldn't. We just think of peace in the most basic of ways. It is The absence of hostilities, at least open hostilities. And while that may be the case, that is not what Paul has in mind. The word that is informing Paul, again, is the word, the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom carries with it the idea of absolute well being. There's a few times in our English translations of the Old Testament where we get close to translating that word. Sometimes you'll see it translated as welfare. But Paul, when he says peace here, he's just thinking about this absolute state of well-being. And in verse 1, he attaches it to God so that he says, because of our faith in Jesus, we are in a a state of absolute well-being, of absolute peace with God. So he's saying more than just that we're not openly hostile to one another anymore. With God's wrath being poured out against my sin and me, as he will say later in Romans 5, being an enemy of God. He's saying more than that we're just not shooting at one another. He is saying that there has has been enacted by the work of Jesus a radical transformation in the nature of, of our relationship with God. And the best thing that he can use to describe it is the word shalom, peace. Now, he characterizes that peace in three ways in the verses that follow. First, characterization. This peace is characterized as, as, as being those who have access to him by faith in this grace in which we stand. So, access by means of grace, is an outcome of this peace that has been wrought by Jesus. What he's communicating here, and he's doing it in the present tense, in this grace in which we stand, to communicate this is the ongoing experience of a Christian, is that because of what Jesus has done, we exist in, we live in the very presence of God that that we have an absolute immediate access to him, and it's not a long-distance call. It's not even a call at all. It is living, existing in his very immediate presence. Several weeks ago, uh, members of the staff engaged in this little uh, game that they didn't invite me to play, and my feelings weren't hurt bad, but they engaged in this little game where they were seeing who had the most famous person in their contacts. In other words, who has access to the person of greatest note? Now, just as a side note, had I played, I'd have totally won. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I would have totally won it. You all play, I got this one, and then that would have been that. But what they were doing was just trying to say who has has that kind of access to someone that important all right what Paul is saying here is that because that which separated us from God our sin and made us the enemies of God and made us the objects of the wrath of God because that has been removed we are ushered into the very presence of of God himself. We exist, we live, we stand in that grace, meaning that we do not deserve it, but Jesus has allowed us to get there as we have placed our faith in Jesus. We have peace with God characterized by our immediate total access to him. Then he goes on to give us the second characteristic of this peace. He says this peace allows us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Over the years, you have heard me say many times that we woefully undersell what Christianity is when we only think of it in terms of going to heaven when we die. Christianity is much more than that, as illustrated by what we have just said. It means we live in the presence of God. But, guess what? Going to heaven when we die is a part of what it means to be at peace with God, because it it naturally works like this. I exist and I live in the presence of God right now. But I i obviously know, we all obviously know, that it's not what it will be one day. When I die, everything that served as a drag on my experience of His presence will be removed and will be infinitely expanded so that I will live in a, in a, in a sense and an experience of the presence of God that even now my mind can't comprehend. And he he refers to it as as the hope of glory. Not the wishful thinking, that's again how we might use the word hope. Not the wishful thinking of of glory, of heaven. But as one author commenting on this uh, verse of scripture said, we live in the happy certainty that heaven... Is our outcome. So peace with God allows us to live in His presence here, to anticipate the expansion of that presence when we leave this body. But drilling down into the day to day, peace with God grants us a joy that transcends our circumstances. And as a kind of the ace of spades here to throw down, to show us just how radically peace with God gives us a joy that transcends circumstances. He talks about suffering. He says more than that, peace with God allows us to rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The suffering that he has primarily in mind here is a suffering that happens as a result of remaining faithful to Jesus. And I'm talking about real suffering that relates to your commitment to Jesus, not imaginary 21st century suffering as it relates to you uh, being faithful to Jesus. Uh, We're talking life on the line, we're talking well being on the line. All of those things that could threaten you in this life, you are able to have a transcendent joy over. Not a yee ha yippee, I love hurting kind of happiness, but a joy that transcends all of it. Why? Because suffering produces, he says, endurance. As I remain faithful in the midst of it costing me to be faithful to Jesus, those muscles are developed. And this effort at growing in my faithfulness produces character. The means by which the life of Jesus begins to take root and be lived out of mind is, is an outcome of suffering. And the Christian knows this, and so they're able to have joy in that. And as Jesus is formed in them, it produces hope as we become more and more Like Jesus, as our lives begin to reflect the life that he would live in our shoes if he were walking in them, we begin to anticipate and know what is happening for me right now is limited compared to where I'm going. I will one day be like him 1 John 3, for I will see him and will be as he is. And this hope will not put us to shame. In other words, I will not get to the finish line and think, man, I should have done something else. It will not put me to shame because I'm living, I'm existing in God's love. It has been poured out into my hearts. The Holy Spirit has equipped me to live a different kind of life. My life has been worth living. A joy that transcends circumstances now again he's talking primarily about a suffering as it relates to faith but by extension he has to mean any kind of joy any kind of heartache that we might experience in our life as we are walking through a sinful world is able to be processed differently in a radical way because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ We exist in a state of complete well-being. Jesus radically changes the nature of our relationship with God and that radically changes everything about our life. Access to God. Hope for an even greater future. The ability to transcend with joy this life. Jesus changes everything. But verse 1 tells us That it is the Jesus who changes everything. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as if Paul anticipates two rhetorical questions from his readers. Number one, well what did Jesus do that accomplished this radical change? And the second rhetorical question is how do I know it took? How do I know that, that it is enduring? That it will keep going on and something else won't need to be done. Anticipating those questions, he begins to wax eloquent, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, this answering the question of, of why Jesus was able to accomplish this radical transformation. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one, he observes, will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a a good person one would dare to die. It's as if he's saying, you know, uh, Derek, you might die for John. Maybe not, but you you might die for John. But you would get that. John's a good guy. But then he says, but God shows his love for us, not in a good person dying for a good person. God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners... And he'll say in a minute, the enemies of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the simple answer to the question, what did Jesus do that accomplished this peace with God, is this. Jesus died for us. But he doesn't explain how his death for us accomplished that. The reason he doesn't is because he's already explained it to us back in Romans 3. Hold your place in Romans 5. Go to Romans 3, verse 21. Romans 1, 18 through three twenty. The summary is, you're bad. You're a sinner. Sin has so infected the human condition that no one can stand before God on their own merit. You're a sinner. But then he says, righteousness, the ability to be right with God, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the Old Testament. In other words, you have believed, many of you, that by keeping the rules of God that we see in Scripture, you can earn favor with God. He said it's been manifested, and it's been shown not to be that. He says, even though the law and the, uh, the prophets, the Old Testament, even though the Old Testament pointed to this, you thought that, God has shown us, There's a different way to be made right with God. He says the righteousness of God, the ability to be made right with God, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Remember how he got started in Romans long ago, back when it was warm and sunny. He said that he wasn't ashamed, Paul said, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the power of God to save, first the Jew, then the Greek. That's what he means there by no distinction. This pathway to God through Jesus is not just... The, the, the right of the Jew, it's the pathway to God for anyone. He's labored to show that that is needed by everyone in Romans 1, 18 through three twenty He says why. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So here he's just said again, Jesus is the one that accomplishes this. But then he explains how Jesus was able to accomplish it. Jesus is the one whom God put forward as a propitiation. We don't use that word much anymore, but it's a word which means appeasement or substitute. He was put forth as our propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So Jesus was our substitute. Our substitute for what? The the substitute to stand in the path of the wrath of God which was our experience from God as sinners. He stood there between us and God and He took it on Himself. He was our substitute. And it was because He substituted Himself that God was able to, without violating His holiness and His character, remove that which caused us Separation from God, removed the stain of sin, removed that which kept us from being at peace with God so that we, because Jesus died for us, died in our place, are able to experience the absolute peace of God. That's why Jesus was, was able to do this. He, he paid the penalty for that which made us the enemies of God. But then the question is, remember there was a rhetorical question he anticipated, how do we know it took? I mean, how do we know that there isn't kind of a a statute of limitations on this? How do we know that we're not going to need a, if you'll forgive me, a religious booster down the road? Here's what he says. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we live by his life be saved by his life. I mean, if he died for us while we were and the word he uses is enemies of God. Now that we're reconciled to him, now that 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 has been taken care of, why why would we possibly think that we wouldn't continue to exist and live within his life? He says the resurrection essentially, proves that God's not going to take it back or require something else. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, he says, we can continue to live, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we can continue to exist in the sure and certain knowledge that this peace that we enjoy with God is never-ending. So Jesus changes everything. He changes everything because the one thing we need is fellowship with God. The one thing we were created for was fellowship with God. The one thing that stood in the way of that was our sin. And Jesus took it away and ushered in this experience of existing in the total well-being of God, how radically does Jesus change everything? Three handles for what we have just walked through. First, Jesus changes our past. Jesus changes our past. You know, being in in vocational ministry at the last part of the 20th century and through uh, the first couple of decades of the the 21st century, I've felt the pressure. I have heard people say, you know what, we need to lead with the good stuff, right? I mean, we need to lead with the good stuff. We need to lead with the kindness and the benevolence and the love of God. And I believe in all of those things. I would not be standing here if I did not absolutely believe in the goodness and love and mercy of God. But I would never know what those things really meant if I didn't understand that my core experience before Jesus was an object of God's wrath and the best word to describe me was as God's enemy. I would never know what a wonderful thing the grace of God is. And I've I've gotten in trouble here at this church before because I tried to express that. And I did so inarticulately and inartfully and it caused confusion years ago and I had to go back and fix it all. (laughs) But what I'm trying to communicate is is that you can't know what the peace of God is if you do not understand that you were once His enemy. Jesus changes our past. Jesus changes our present. In other words, the life I live now is a life where I live in the unfettered access to God as my father. Not as a a preferred friend or an A-list customer, but I exist with God as my father in this life. And because of that, everything about this life should be radically different than anything else that would be observable. I should be so swept away in the idea that Jesus changed my present that the only explanation for my life would be that radical transformation. I should not be shaped more by my Johnson County culture or by my family of origin or by my social media feed. We should be able to say as we look at our lives... Jesus changed everything about that person. Jesus changes my present. Obviously, Jesus changes my future. He changes my future. My future is what Pastor John read in Revelation 5. My future is at the feet of Jesus. My future is like this. As great as things are right now in my experience with God, I can't conceive of how it's going to be one of these days. I can't conceive of that. Jesus changes everything. And so, kind of going back, I haven't done this in the other services, but kind of going back to what we talked about last week, about how sometimes people put their faith in a prayer and not faith in Jesus. If you put your faith in something that happened a long time ago and convince yourself that that's what Jesus wanted. Your testimony of faith in Jesus, saying essentially, I'm saved and here's why I believe I'm saved, is an effort to explain away the inconsistencies in your life. In other words, I know I'm a sinner and I know I'm in sin and I know I'm unrepentant, but I know I'm saved because I said the thing a long time ago. That's not biblical Christianity. Our testimony should be an explanation of why our lives are different. You ought to hear me share with you that I was saved on March the 26th, 1978, and go, oh, that's why He's the way He is. Because Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything about us. Jesus radically transforms our life at the root level. And if we are existing and living with this idea that what Jesus wants from us is to just kind of stumble our way through some Sunday morning habits and then essentially live unhinged, disconnected lives from Him the rest of the week. We have not understood biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is a change of the nature of our relationship to God. We are at peace with God. That changes everything and should be what shapes all of our life. And our prayer is that if you have not yet come to an understanding of faith in those terms, that you will today. Let's pray.